drop. You are listening to the Story Forward podcast, which, as always, is brought to you by the same fine folks who gave you. Story Forward presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. I am one of your hosts, Larry Rosen. And I am the other host, Christian Wynn. There's a little pause there. Sometimes Christian isn't quite sure who he is. <laughs> I, I'm trying, at least. We're, no, we're doing all right. I understand your excitement because today we have a different sort of structure uh, thus yeah. far. What are we, we, eight, nine episodes in by now? Something like that? Yeah, we've got quite a few. Yeah, yeah. Know, eggs in the basket, so to speak. We waited till now to switch it up uh, on you. You know, the, the, the structure of this podcast is usually intro, uh, interview, and then correspondent piece. But there are some parts of our summer stories theme that lend themselves better to just a series of stories rather than an interview with someone. This week is one of those times. Christian, why don't you explain what the topic of the week is? Uh, the topic of the week is uh, summer jobs, and we can all probably relate to that in one way or another. And you're going to talk about a little bit, or we're going to get into sort of the difference or the similarities between bad jobs and summer jobs, because of course, often summer jobs are sort of one-offs, you know, when you're yeah, out of school yeah. and all that. And they, they, I have a few to tell you about, and Larry does too. But, uh, yeah. I think as as writers with varying degrees of success, uh, we maybe more than others have a life experience full of <laughs> point. Well, I don't want to say pointless, but I'll say it pointless, kind of dead end, oddball jobs yeah. as a way to make a little money while we kind of feed our writing addiction. Sometimes those jobs take place over the course of a summer. Sometimes they don't. So a lot of my summer jobs are not actually taking place in the summer. But when we get into it, I'll do my best to uh, focus on the summer ones. We have three readers today. Readers, I guess you could call them readers. Some read, some, well, I think two of them have had a written script, um, and one of them just went off the, the cuff and more, a little more of an interview style with our man Sam Berman. So Right. So, yeah, it'll be Forrest Gerlach, Jocelyn Robertson, and Sam Berman. Who yes. Would, and I'd be yeah. remiss. One, one moment, Mr. Rosen. Forrest has corrected me several times on this, too. It is Gerlach. Forrest Gerlach. Yes. Okay. okay. Yep. Give, a little, give a little love to the A. Good to know. Um, I can't wait to hear his story because I have been waiting for it for quite a while. Uh, as soon as he said what he was going to talk about, my ears pricked up because that's exciting. But meanwhile, let's talk about us. Okay. We've had our share of summer jobs. Why don't you lay one on me that you had that stands out? Oh, man, I have a few written down here. My first real, I mean, what I think of was a youthful summer job. I worked at, I got a job at the Palo Alto Municipal Golf Course when I was like 15 years old, living in Palo Alto. And it, it just, you know, summertime, golfing barefoot with my friends, learning a game that I've continued to play as best as I can throughout the uh, years of my life. Um, and I still play. So it just has this very kind of nostalgic feel listening to, I would go out and pick up the range balls with the, with a little you tractor. Were, and you were the guy that we were aiming at. In the, <laughs> yes. in the truck. I've had more than one of those jobs. Uh, I will go into, but the Palo Alto Muni one, I just remember like this, it's like the soundtrack of my like ninth, eighth and ninth grade, I guess, life ninth grade at least a little more but listening like to the go-go's to the cars on my i got a walkman at the time it was a kind of a knockoff walkman so i was super psyched about that and so i would drive the cart pick up the range balls listen to some go-go's so that's like my nostalgic sort of i was a kid one i seem to go back to and i've written some stories that in involve people who work at golf courses 
as has James Franco, by the way. He wrote a, a story that's partly set at the Palo Alto Municipal Golf Course. It kind of pissed me off. Up. Oh, because he, be, he got well, by being James Franco, more people read it, whether or not it's I, I, Yeah, it's definitely not better, but yeah, no. I'm bitter, <laughs> I'm bitter. But that, yeah, but gosh, you want me to go into a few more? You want to lay one of your early ones I'll lay, on me? I'll lay one on you. And this, this actually may be a little lengthy. I'm going to get into it. So the one that stands out most to me technically did not play, take place in summer. Because I believe it was December, but I was in the Southern Hemisphere, which is their summer. That so counts. That counts. After I graduated college, because I had no idea what to do and didn't speak any language other than English, I chose to get a one a, an open-ended ticket to Australia. And I went down to Australia, which a lot of people do, right? Or did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Traveled around for a few months and eventually ran out of money. And this kid I met said, oh, we can get jobs in Tully on the banana plantation. And, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but if there was people like me at the time who were upper middle class kids in love with this idea of being working class kids. And I thought, this is a great idea. This will be so cool. We go down to Tully, we rent a caravan, which to you and me is a trailer in a trailer park that is the worst place on earth. So bad that if you open a drawer, at least three cockroaches would come crawling out at you. And we get these jobs, illegal jobs at the banana plantation, which I think you hear a job at the banana plantation, you think, oh, you're going to be out in the field, right? Like picking bananas. No. no. I, was, I, was in the, in the, um, I was in the packing shed making boxes. And I couldn't keep up. And it took about an hour after waking up at six o'clock in the morning and the bus picks you up with like 25 guys crammed into the bus. I just remember the chair I was sitting in was falling to the side. So I was like falling to the side, my little sandwich in my bag, still kind of psyched because this is like such an adventure that I'll be able to tell people about 35 years later. Get there. They put me to work making boxes and it was awful. And I, (laughs) I immediately... I had a battlefield conversion back to upper middle class kid and decided I was too good for this job. Even though it was supposed to be an adventure job, I sat there making my boxes. There were these two people that I used to say at some point in their lives were women. I don't know what they had become now, but they were just making boxes in a frenzy. (laughs) And I was such a jerk. I would sit there and read Hemingway at lunch just to, (laughs) to indicate to them you know, that I was this, was not born for this, that I was better somehow. And we'd go to the bar at night and everyone would, the bananas would leave these horrible yellow stains on your clothes. And we'd go to the bar and everyone in there would be wearing yellow stained clothes and just drinking like you've like 15 beers. This one guy told me, I used to drink a lot, but now I only have 10 or 12 a day. <laughs> this is the, so, and I'm just judging, judging, judging. I remember we worked a Saturday Bus picks us up. We go down there. And at one point we get to this corner and there's, it's like, it looks like the jungle cruise. There's a Jeep on its side. And there's <laughs> other guys from the banana field standing next to it, scratching his head. And we pull over and we say, what happened? And he says, was I driving last night? So he didn't know. Oh no. <laughs> was this a guy who, a fellow, a fellow banana guy? Yeah, he, was our, he was at our, he was at our little shed, but but the worst part about it, I mean, yeah, fine, it sucked, whatever. I couldn't keep up. I Actually, I did keep up. I remember one day I worked like a stormtrooper. They told me that. The worst part about it is after like three weeks working under a fake name, I told them my last name was Pate. But by the time, I told them my name was, I told them my name was Larry Tate. That's right, after Bewitched. <laughs> now, why was that? Because I was working illegally. I was an illegal alien. Uh... Sorry, undocumented worker. But by the last day when I quit, they were super nice to me. They're like, oh, we hate to lose you here. And they had a fosters for me and they were so nice. And I was such a jerk. And that was a lesson I learned. I went and picked up my paycheck in cash. It was addressed to Michael Pate. 
which was my new name. <laughs> and I moved on with my tail between my legs. That is my summer job story. I have plenty that's of good. others, but that's the one that sticks out. That's pretty good. So this three weeks, that's it? Just three weeks. <laughs> well, I, and I was an idiot. I needed more money. But I just like, that's enough money. That's, I'm just, Well, that's just, how we were at times. We've talked, we've talked about this before. Um, right, you know, um, you marry the lead. You think the lead is, you know, young man, full of promise, gets horrible job. But the real story is arrogant young man <laughs> refuses to notice. You know, arrogant young man judges the world. That is, that is the, well, the theme of that story. Yeah, mine, this other last one, I guess for me, I, well, I can just, you know, I have a couple more. Gosh, I, I, I do want to talk about the worst one where arrogance probably played into the whole debacle of it all, but also just the, the people who hired me. I don't know what they were thinking. But <laughs> so I was like 21, I think freshly 21 in Seattle, um, going to Seattle Pacific and a good friend of mine and his girlfriend at the time was also a good friend, but she is a, was a nanny over in this in the Magnolia neighborhood. Now, how would you say about Magnolia? It's a very nice, it's a kind of neighborhood where a kid might grow up, go to Australia, get a job at banana plantation and think he's better than everybody else. <laughs> exactly. And so she was leaving for the summer and they needed a nanny or a manny, as you said now, or I said nano, but I, you know, just like I said, freshly 21, all my friends, freshly 21, living in the city, going out all night. And then I had to be there at like eight in the morning to take care of these kind of precocious young, like a nine and a 12 year old. And they were sports in like, these, they were sports free, right? They were pretty much sports free. They, they were like video game kids way back in the, this is like, I guess probably late eighties. Um, but yeah, I was, it was not a good fit. I made it through the summer as I recall, but I definitely was pretty judgy of those kids and that family. Cause I was like, you know, kind of an, upper middle class kid too um, by that time and they were I don't know they, their whole gifted child kind of uh, I guess way of looking at the how they, were, they wanted their kids raised was a little bit frustrating for me but I was a bad fit and I don't think they were super happy in the end but they didn't actually fire me so <laughs> which is you know and it's sort of a similar takeaway that in the end the things I don't want to include you in this necessarily but the things I made people put up with that they happily put up with is yeah. a testament to them, not to me. Let's put it that way. I know. I don't, the kids didn't narc me out or anything probably when they could have too. So, <laughs> <laughs> And what I would inevitably do, another friend of mine was living in his mother's basement, Calvin, who may be on the show sometime. Um, I hope so. They lived, his mom lived um, in Magnolia also. And so I would just, we'd go out till wee hours of the night and I'd crash in the basement. And then I, during that time, his mom yelled at me and a couple other friends who were staying there. He's like, we're not running a flop house here and ah. kind of ran us out and wouldn't let us stay there anymore after a while. But um, she had a, you know, she had her peculiarities. But anyway, that was way back, like I said, late 80s. But here we are today to talk. I think we probably should just get to the stories, huh? Yeah, because we've just used up a lot of time telling our own stories. So we're going to start with Forrest Gerlach's story. Uh, give us a little bit of what that one's going to be about. Gosh, it's a far-flung young man's job story. He, I was living, I believe, in the Boise area at the time, which was where he lives now, but uh, where he grew up. Basically, he'll tell you a lot about it here in a sec, but it's set in Alaska at a cannery, I believe, where it was, things were not what they promised they were going to be. Mm -hmm. So that's all I'll say, but he tells a great story 
And then, uh, yeah, we've got a couple others. We have Jocelyn Robertson coming at you. We'll tell you a little more about her story during the transition. And then Sam Berman is our final storyteller. And then uh, we'll give you a little bit of what his story is about in the transition as well. Are you ready? I am. All right. Forrest Gerlach. Hello. My name is Forrest, and today I'm here to talk to you about taking a terrible summer job at a salmon cannery in Alaska back in 2016. Now, I'd like you to imagine the shape of Alaska really quickly, specifically where the round part of that state meets the peninsula, that little crook right there. It's something I like to call the armpit of Alaska, because when our dingy little charter plane landed there, hit the airport at King Salmon... Uh, it was not the Alaska that you would think that you've probably heard described to you ad nauseum, where it's just these sweeping mountains and beautiful wilderness by the ocean. No, no. This was flatland tundra with some grass and a lot of weeds and like sort of a tree line off to the side of the road. And you could see for mile. <laughs> and it was... It didn't take very long. We got out of the airport, were shuffled into this rickety old school bus that was barely being held up, told we were going to an old 80s Air Force base that got repurposed for the cannery, and I started to think to myself, I think I've made a terrible mistake. And to give you an idea why I would take a job like this, first off, I didn't know what was going to happen, obviously. But also, back then in 2016, I was just graduating community college, and uh, I was pretty poor. So I needed some money so that I could get into the Boise State University. And uh, I submitted my resume pretty much everywhere. This cannery was one of the first ones to respond. I had the easiest interview of all time because I don't mind fish. And uh, they hired me on the spot. And I looked at the optics. It's about uh, 15 hours a day, seven days a week, which is a lot. It's about 105 hours a week. But what makes this, what I thought at least would make this worth going to was that the pay was about $10 an hour, which is about $250 more than uh, minimum wage was here. And about $15 per overtime. To give you an idea to break down the math really quickly, it's about 40 hours that pay $10, 65 hours that pay $15. You'd make about $13.75 a week, ideally. And so my goal was to go up there, you know, sell my soul for a month and come back with uh, at least $3,000 to $4,000 and hoping that maybe it was going to pay off. As a spoiler alert, it, it really didn't. We pulled into the lodging and we uh, went to the mess hall where we got this presentation on what exactly to expect. We were going to be assigned to the fish house, the cannery, case up, which is the freezer section, or the fillet room. Uh, there was a zero tolerance policy for misconduct. And misconduct, by the way, is in quotations because firings would be very common as time would go on. If you, were, if you ever cut work for one day you were fired. If you called in sick too many times, you were fired. Um, they pretty much had carte blanche to just kick you out for whatever reason. And if you were fired, and this is the really key thing here, if you were fired, you would have to pay for the plane ticket there, the plane ticket back, as well as an additional 15 to $20 a day for every day that you stayed here. So it was a really expensive. You were probably going back in the negatives if you tried to quit earlier if you got fired but you know we were told work's gonna start the next day and that uh you know we should just get cozy with our surroundings i, I remember going to the dormitory with my other two roommates that i was assigned and thinking man this place kind of sucks 
<laughs> the walls are like super thin. I mean, like thick as a quarter, probably two. If I'm being generous, all of the buildings were super cheap. There were CRT televisions just hooked up to the wall. The wires like splayed across the whole place. They were hooked up to PowerPoints. None of our rooms had curtains either, which really sucks because, you know, it's daytime for about 21 hours of the day in July. No cell phone service. If we wanted any sort of cell service, we had to walk about two miles to another little town, Knack and uh, hook into the Wi-Fi at the library there. It was, like, the bare minimum. Although the fish house and the cannery looked nice, which I guess is probably just to keep up with health codes and whatnot. So we were told to expect work the next day. Next day rolls around. Nothing. Watch the TV and nothing happens. We're told, I just keep an eye on it. Third day rolls around. Nothing. And there's not a lot to do exactly, so I did a lot of reading because, you know, talking to people, who does that? The day afterwards, day four, nothing. Day five, nothing. There was so nothing to do for the whole time. Not even work. We couldn't even, like, volunteer to do anything. But... Day number six rolled around, and I was called to the fish house to do uh, just a couple things, uh, which was to scoop fish heads and mop the floors when we were done. And I won't get too graphic, because, like, you know, it's kind of gross. I will at least give you this lovely imagery that, like, trying to scoop out the meat and fish heads, it's kind of like... um, Like cleaning a fleshy grapefruit, I suppose. And for the record, we didn't have any specialized equipment. These were like spoons you would see in a kitchen. Like tablespoons and stuff. Just scotch taped to some watery hoses. Uh, There's a whole routine to get inside, by the way. If you want to get into the fish house, you have to get an apron. You have to have your special boots. You have to hose off your apron. Put another apron on top of that. Then walk through some ammonia. Get hosed down one more time. It's about the most lo-fi decontamination you've ever heard of. And then we had to do that as well as we came out to. Sanitization was super, super duper strict. So that first day... And by the first day, I mean the sixth day, we uh, were scooping fish heads for several hours. And from that point on, we had pretty intermittent work. I was assigned to shift C, which was working from night till morning, morning till evening. I think the time was somewhere around the vicinity of like 11 p.m. to 7 and then breakfast break 8 till 3, something around there. It's uh, armchair math. I'm probably off by a little bit. But, yeah, it's it's hard work and working at night. Sometimes I got to see the moon. It was kind of nice. I was put on sort of whatever job in the fish house was needed at that time. The fish house, by the way, where all of the fish is processed, it's like sent to the machine and sliced open and whatnot. Um, The job that I did the most in that was grading fish. uh, G-R-A-D-I-N-G, grading. Uh, So I would be put on a conveyor belt. And these fish would go by, and I would have about half a second to look at them and decide if they go in pile one, pile two, or pile three. Pile one was if the fish looked really, really nice. Pile two was if the fish had, like, a little bit of bruising or, like, some broken bones or something, but it's still salvageable. And pile three, which was just a giant bin, was when it came out looking like a meat blossom. There's a surprising amount of fish that get put into pile three. And I think I put a flounder in there, too, but don't don't tell anybody. Uh, It's... Really hard work, like I said. There is no sitting. There's no breaks outside of, like, one at the three and a half hour mark, and then an hour long one, 
after about seven or eight hours. Uh, and the whole time they're playing just this obnoxious music the whole time. I mean, sometimes it was pretty good, but like if you have to listen to four straight hours of polka, it, it, it definitely grates after a certain point. So that second week, a lot of very intermittent work, usually grading, and eventually, you know, I kind of figured it out. I got to know a few of the people around the cannery, not like super well, because, you know, I'm pretty antisocial, but some highlights. There was one guy who, um, very enthusiastic about everything. I remember struggling with some trays once that I had to lift full of just tons of fillets. He was like, come on, you got this! There was another guy who uh, pulled me aside at one point and taught me how to make uh, prison beer. I'm not sharing that for the record. You 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 don't get a no on this podcast. Just a, just a lot of different people, but a lot of like really interesting and engaging people that all kind of were in this for the same reason. They wanted they wanted something better. They or they just had to. So. Once week three started, we were told that we were going full stop on work. It wasn't just uh, 15 hour days, which we hadn't quite been working. It was kind of close, but like it was mostly like somewhere in the vicinity of six to 12 hour days. But week three, Monday, we were told full days. 15 hours and it was about flipping time too. I was tired of working these crap ass shifts. And making pennies for it. I wasn't, I hadn't even made overtime money at this point yet. So week three starts and it's 15 hour days back to back. And I'm not exaggerating when I say like that whole thing feels like that whole week, this entire week just felt like one day. It's, it's a really strange feeling to describe because you never see the moon. It's always the same brightness outside all the time. Walk in, do work, walk out, eat, walk in, do work, walk out, sleep, walk in, wake up, repeat. It's all just a weird giant smear. And, uh, you know, at first when I was doing it, I was pretty sore. Then I started having like muscle spasms across my entire back, which is kind of like, you know, if like your spine is like shifting the entire time. And then I don't know what happened. I think I just got buff. Well, we'll, we'll go with that. It makes me feel better at least. So we had six days of 15 hours, and then the seventh day rolls around. I look at the TV to find out, you know, make sure, hey, we're going to go work at the fish house. And all it said on the screen was, happy birthday, Leo. And I figured, well, I don't want to get fired because, like, you know, getting fired is really, really bad. So I got dressed like normal, went down there, and they're like, oh, you're not on the list. You can go back later. It's like, okay, well... Can't go nap, because, like, if I do get called, like, I'm, I ain't waking up. So, you know, I just stare at the TV the whole time in the mess hall, and eventually we're told, hey, C-shift, get to work. So I get down there, work for about maybe two hours or so, and somebody, one of the supervisors comes up behind me, taps me on the shoulder, and says, uh, hey, you on C-shift? Yes. Well, you can go back to the dorm now. And I, you know, I was about to protest because this was my final day. And then, uh, you know, if it's luck would have it, I looked behind me and it turns out the machine that processes all the salmon had started breaking down. There was a salmon stuck in a pipe. It's one that's supposed to send the salmon uphill to the cannery, but something got clogged and uh, it was making a giant mess. So I did what any good worker would do. Instead of clocking out, I sat there and I watched them play on this thing. For about an hour. And as time went on, more and more people joined me and we all were just kind of watching these 
few leads climb up this machine and stick their hands inside every possible pipe trying to figure this out. And eventually somebody caught on. I'm like, everybody, everybody clock out. Every clock out. We'll call you when we need you. Uh, so, you know, we went to lunch and I had this hope that, you know, oh, maybe, maybe we get to keep working now because they're going to need us after all of this because they're falling behind. And sure enough, about half an hour later, we're told the machine's fixed. Everybody needs to get back to work. So we get in, get dressed and all of these things, work another like half hour or so. Somebody comes up behind me and says, uh, you on C-shift? And so I said, yes. It's like, well, you can go back now. And let me tell you, not making that overtime money on that final day after I had been jerked around this whole time was basically the killer of the rest of my motivation. We had some intermittent work again on the fourth week. It was like barely anything, to be honest. And I was shuffled around the cannery. Case up, by the way, is the worst. Having to work in that freezer is very hard work. And my hours were inconsistent, and I had no idea when I was working, what I was working. So, like, you know, I was kind of afraid to sleep most of the time because I might be called in the afternoon to go do something. And I had no idea when I was going home, either. They, they had given us no indication when the season was going to end. And by the way, I just want to give you a heads up if you think that this was like, oh, maybe it was just a bad salmon season. If you just like go to a search engine like DuckDuckGo or Google and you look up salmon fishing in 2016, apparently it was a banner year. I just worked for a real stinky cannery. What are the odds? Well, about six days into that final week, we were finally told, hey, you're headed home. And I was told about four hours before I was actually headed home. I got my paycheck. If you want to take a guess, have at it. The paycheck was $1,800. I made $1,800 that whole month, which is a far cry. That was like half of what I hoped to make. I did get $200 to, for the layover. But, like, you know, <laughs> packing everything was pretty quick. Uh, there were a lot of people celebrating. I remember specifically in my dorm, there were people that were like, we should do homemade hook tattoos to commemorate being there. Somebody got, like, an old pen and a lighter and a needle and, like, some alcohol they bought in Knack Knack and uh, basically did their own homebrew tattoos. I remember passing by at one point and somebody was like, wait, 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 wait. Do we, uh, do we clean the needle before doing mine? And just sort of this shocked silence. It was very awkward, and I pretty much just ran right back to my room. I was not a part of that, but uh, I was holding back some laughter <laughs> and a little bit of empathy, but also, yikes. We uh, get back on the school bus, go back to the airport, and we fly out to Anchorage. Uh, Anchorage is next going to take us to Seattle. We left Knack Knack at about 3, arrived at Anchorage about 6 or 7, and our next plane was going out at about uh, 9 a.m. the next day. <laughs> we were stuck in the airport for a whole 12 hours, and at this point, because I had been working so long and not been sleeping and whatnot, I was starting to get pretty snotty and coffee and sick. Is uh, the cannery cold, as people liked to call it. Uh, and I still couldn't sleep, so I had been awake most of last night. All of that night, too. Just sick and tired as a dog. Remember getting some chicken nuggets at 4 o'clock. Thank you. And just 
sitting at an airport seat and moping the whole time. And eventually we fly out to Seattle. I'm like trying to figure out how the hell I'm going to get back to Boise. Eventually we figured it out. I collaborated with my parents and, uh, you know, the uh, plane ticket back to Boise cost a little more than 200 because of course it did. Cannery can't even pay the layover, right? Get back on the plane after six hours and I'm sitting on the plane. I'm just like, I can't wait to go home. And the next to me is an old lady and she was very nice. She came from another cannery and about, you know, 20, 30 minutes into the flight, I'm just staring out the window and I'm done. And I feel something thud against my shoulder and I look over and she's sleeping on me and she's drooling on me. And I, I really don't know a more fitting summation of my trip than that. I will say, I am grateful for the very surreal experience I had. There are so many other stories to tell in here. And, you know, I'm kind of grateful for the handful of pennies and nickels I was paid to. And let me tell you, I will never take advantage of it again. Thank you. We are back. We that are back. Great. Yes. What comes next? Well, we want to say thanks to Forts, but yeah, we have Jocelyn Robertson, a friend of ours from the Boise area as well. And she worked in Nampa, Idaho at a Rite Aid at the one hour photo where at that time back in, I believe, what was the early nineties? She'll tell us about that, but you've got to see people's lives and uh, I won't give too many details away. There's some strange kind of heartbreaking stuff in here as well as some strange, gosh, just glimpses behind people's you know behind their you know, closed doors so to speak so she's gonna give us that so here we are jocelyn robertson my summer job in college was working at rite aid i cashiered stocked shelves helped old ladies find a tube of their favorite revlon lipstick the same orange color they'd been wearing for decades i hated the job customers were almost universally mean to the lowly drugstore worker they were there to buy dandruff shampoo, antifungal foot spray, incontinence pads, two tall boys of red dog beer. Things they didn't want to buy, didn't want to spend money on, and yet here they were. And I was here too. A captive audience for their flippant demands, rude comments, to sweep their sweaty cash into my palm after they'd tossed it in my general direction across the worn laminate counter. Smile, the male customers would say. You'd be much prettier if you'd smile, you know. We were a corporate chain with an inadequate inventory system, so our stock rarely lined up with the weekly ad. Inevitably, an irate customer would come at me about Tide detergent, Van Camp's pork and beans, chewable antacids. We never had enough Van Camp's pork and beans. I asked myself, why are people buying pork and beans at their local drugstore? Why was it so important that they get them for 25 cents instead of 29 cents a can? Didn't they realize if they hoarded all 24 cans we had, the next person would get none? And then they'd come at me about no van camps? If you're wondering if this is a real scenario, I can assure you it is. It happened to me many, many times over the several years I worked at Rite Aid. As a drugstore employee, I was warned repeatedly about kids. Kids steal. Kids break stuff. Watch them closely when they are in the store. Kids couldn't bring a backpack in, and they were always being chased out of the parking lot for riding a skateboard or their bike. And yet, every morning when I straightened the shelves, I noticed the empty boxes shoved behind the merchandise were always for acid reducer pills, pregnancy tests, and herbal impotence remedies. But yeah, kids... 
I still can't listen to Christmas music because it triggers memories of knockdown, drag-out fights I had with customers at 6 a.m. on Black Friday. Maybe we had one of the 12-pack of Matchbox cars we had advertised for a bargain basement price. I then had to explain to the next 11 customers that we were already sold out of that item, that they had just wasted their morning elbowing fellow sale hunters only to come up empty-handed, and no, I could not issue them a rain check as those prices were good for today only. Help yourself to a donut, I would say to them through clenched teeth while the jingle bell rock played over the intercom. I could have you fired, you know, they'd respond. Sometimes I'd wish they'd at least try, but the reality was the company paid me minimum wage with no benefits to work long, lousy hours, and I kept showing up, donning my smock to take the abuse of the customers day after day, summer after summer, and Christmas breaks too. They would have never fired me. We offered copying and faxing services, 25 cents a page. Once a woman asked me to make a hundred copies of a document for her on fluorescent pink cardstock. In bold lettering, over and over on the page, it said, I am God's puppet. Whose puppet are you? I am God's puppet. Whose puppet are you? Right aids, I guess. There was one part of my job that I did love, though, working the one-hour photo booth. This was still in the era of film cameras, so people would drop off their rolls of film fill out an envelope telling us what size of photos and the quantity, and we would run them through our big photo developer machine, sometimes in an hour, or at least by the next day. I guess most people don't really know how it works. They assumed it was a very anonymous process, but whomever was running that machine saw every single one of their pictures. We were required to look at them for quality control. Sometimes the different chemicals used in the developing would be mixed in correctly, or would be running out and the colors in the photos would be wrong, or sometimes the feed of the negatives would get off, so the pictures would print with more than one image. You would have to reset the negative and reprint. It was like the copy machine, very complicated with lots of moving parts that had to be adjusted and carefully monitored, and otherwise the whole thing would jam or go on the fritz, and you'd have to pull it apart and start over from scratch. Looking at the photos from the general public in Nampa, Idaho, provided a weird insight into the community and culture. It was a window into people's intimate lives. You saw the insides of their houses, attended their parties and events, went on vacation with them. You could see what food they were eating and what they wore sitting around the living room on Christmas morning. More people than I would have assumed had a bare mattress on the floor rather than a bed frame. Very few people had art or decor on their walls, but very many of them had video game consoles and gaming chairs. There were lots of torsiere lamps. Almost everyone had one. Nine out of ten couches were brown. Lots of food was served in white corningware casserole dishes with the foil bunched back, and birthdays were celebrated with a cake from Albertsons, with whipped white frosting and swoopy gel lettering, and two-liter bottles of orange Shasta. But it wasn't all camping pics, babies, and birthday parties. There was a fair amount of amateur porn, including one memorable role where the woman was nude, except for the same old baseball cap, despite her varied locations and poses. It was a Red Sox hat. One guy took hundreds of pictures of airplane models. Another photographed train cars, roll after roll after roll of train cars. I developed pictures from a baby funeral, an open casket baby funeral. Did you know the local police department doesn't have an internal photo lab? 
I didn't either until I developed pictures of crime scenes, evidence, and a couple of times, an autopsy. One of my favorite customers was a nice middle-aged woman who came in about once a week. She was always friendly and easygoing. If you couldn't get her pictures done in an hour, she'd say, just call me when they're done, no hurry. She didn't complain about the price or complain about signing up for a right rewards card. She didn't ring the bell for service 15 times in a row, and she didn't ever ask if I was working hard or hardly working. Not once. This nice middle-aged lady had three grown daughters, two brunettes and a blonde. Sometimes one of the daughters, or two, would come in with her to Rite Aid. Probably after lunch together, they'd pop in, look at the new shades of nail polish, and flip through the People magazine while she filled out the photo envelope. All her pictures were of these daughters and their husbands and cute kids. She took pictures of picnics at the park, of playing in the water at the lake. She took pictures of trick-or-treating and kitten snuggling and sticky popsicle faces at the 4th of July parade. The whole family was happy and smiling and together in 100% of the pictures. I think I particularly noticed this lady because, yeah, she was nice, which was rare, but also because I was one of three daughters. And at that point in my life, I didn't get along with my mother. She wasn't thrilled about my chosen life path, was disappointed that I'd moved in with my boyfriend and that I hadn't taken the scholarship. She hated that I was overweight. She hated my politics. She hated that I worked at Rite Aid. I rarely saw my sisters. One had gone away to college and the other was younger. And to see me, she would have had to coordinate something with my mom. I longed to have a mother who took my picture, who enjoyed my company, a mother who wasn't judging me for everything she thought was wrong about me, but instead was smiling at me and my sisters from across the table. It was early summer, my second year on the job, when I noticed in the pictures the blonde daughter had cut her hair into a short pixie style. Not that a girl can't get a haircut, but it just stood out to me, since up until that point, the mom and the three daughters had always had long, straight hair flat-ironed, highlighted, pretty, long hair. She looked cute with the shortcut, sporty. About a month later, though, was she thinner? Was her skin kind of sallow? Or was it the lighting? By the end of the summer, it was obvious. She was wan, gray skin, blonde hair, patchy, so thin she seemed half the size she'd been. In the pictures, she was always sitting down now, her kids and husband, her sisters, crowded around her, leaning in, touching heads. Everybody was still always smiling, always together. I wasn't there the morning the mom of the three daughters dropped off the roll of film, but I was there that afternoon to develop the pictures. 36 exposures, four by sixes, double prints. They were pictures of the funeral and the service at the cemetery. The family crowded around the new polished headstone littered with flowers. Beloved mother daughter, sister. A bouquet of bright blue balloons bobbed in the sky above. When the mom came to pick up her pictures, she was reserved. She looked tired. I wanted to say something, to say how sorry I was, to say that I admired her family, how close and loving they all were, and that I was so sad for their loss. But of course I couldn't say anything. I couldn't say anything because she probably didn't know that at the one-hour photo, the girl behind the counter looks at all your pictures for quality control, but also because she longs for a different life, one that looks more like yours. I couldn't say anything because she probably didn't know that I'd watched her daughter thrive 
and then decline, and then die, all in pictures taken by her, but developed by me. I couldn't say anything because even though I knew everything about her and her daughters, she didn't know me. I was just the cashier at Rite Aid. I was a stranger. It was Christmas Eve before I saw her again. I was bracing for the inevitable flush of last-minute shoppers, all husbands and boyfriends, desperately seeking an open store to buy their partner a gift, a bottle of Taboo or Jeanette, a cheap gold bracelet from the jewelry spinner, an electric toothbrush. She was standing at the one-hour photo counter filling out the order envelopes as I'd seen her do so many times in the past. When I rounded the corner into the booth, I saw she had a plastic gallon bag completely stuffed with negatives from past orders. I need four copies of all of these pictures, she said. Four copies. So I don't forget. If you can, just call me when they're done. Not long after, I graduated from college, and I quit my job at Rite Aid. And that's the last I saw of the mother and her two daughters. That was great by Jocelyn, and I'm glad to hear that she never became a stalker like Robin Williams in that movie, One Hour Photo. Do you remember that? I do. I, we've talked about that before, and yeah. I think all her experience was before that mm. film came out, I believe. It's, it's a great concept, you know, that you would become obsessed. I, I wouldn't doubt that I would become obsessed with people's lives if I looked at their pictures. Absolutely. I'm obsessed with uh, all the... I've come, recently come across a bunch of old pictures that I actually took or my friends took, and I'm like... I don't remember half this stuff, so I was get to make it. But anyway, that's just me. But uh, Jocelyn, awesome. Well, next up, to wrap things up, we, we spoke before about young men acting badly. Uh, Sam Berman, who is a friend of ours, who has been... Uh, did we ever actually get Sam on a Story Fort? We got on the Story Fort Presents podcast when we were talking about sports. That's right. He was in the sports panel. He's done a bar fight, uh, uh, at least one, I think two bar fights with me, maybe, or maybe just one. I'm not sure. Uh, and probably more to come. He is a writer in Boise. And for his, gosh, I'm not even sure really how to encapsulate his tale of a summer job, other than to say that it was really a trip into the underworld. Literally at times, yes. In Chicago, a few years back, some of his misspent youth, where he did pretty much anything for money, and he'll tell you about that. And it is a little bit, he was more comfortable telling the story with somebody else in the room, he said. So we kind of had a little... Very lightly moderated conversation, uh-huh. but it's mostly Sam. Great. I can't wait. But let her rip, Sam. Okay. Good friend, great writer, great storyteller, Sam Berman is with us. And I'm just going to kind of sit back and he's going to tell me and all of you a pretty cool summer job story. Um, and I'm going to interject here and there, but this is Sam's story. So everybody, Mr. Sam Berman. Thank you, Mr. Christian Wynn. Like, cool is an adjective. That, that's one way to describe this story, I would say, certainly. So I've told you bits and pieces about kind of my, my in-between time in Chicago. So this is, uh, this is one of those summers. I think everybody out there has had one of those somewhere between 20 and 25 where you're staving off adulthood just a little bit longer kind of summers. I think so, yeah. So this is a summer story that starts in the winter. Okay. A little plot twist there, yeah. My dad has a great big sailboat in Chicago. And in Chicago, the way the harbors work there is you got to put in for, if you want one of these spots in sort of these classic ones in the middle of downtown with the skyscrapers, you know, looking over your shoulder thing, you got to put in 
early. Yeah, my dad was on this list for 20 years waiting for this slip kind of thing. He'd gone from harbor to harbor, bouncing around Lakeshore Drive until finally, like, his spot opened up. And he's got a long, classic sailboat. It's 65 feet. The, my sailboat heads out there will know exactly that that's a real deal kind of uh, vessel, seaworthy vessel, is they say, kind of thing. So... It starts that winter where my dad and a couple of his new dock mates, that's what you call the people all around you on the dock, your dock mates. He went out to look at his slip, just admire an empty patch of water right off his dock where his boat will be in the coming season kind of thing. Field of dream style sort of. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I was partying like a lot back then. I mean, I, I'm going to... I'm going to try and be magnanimous with my details about people as they were very magnanimous with me back then. And so we'll just call it partying, right? Is that a good catch-all? Well, if you want to go Hard to partying? A, uh, yeah. <laughs> Hard partying? Is that... You can speak to whatever okay. you want to reveal about right. your partying days in Chicago. Okay. So it's partying a lot back then, and that had turned into, like, just what I was doing, kind of day in and day out. So all of the work I was doing kind of revolved around that. Like, could I live that lifestyle of partying and stay, keeping awake at work and doing all that and keep jobs? So I'm out there in the winter with my dad, and uh, I'm out there with a couple of these dock guys, and I would get to know this personality trait. They're just out there talking about how good summer is going to be, and one of them goes, how cold do you think that water is? And I kind of tagged along with my dad to see his empty plot of water that day, and I go, oh, God, it's got to be, you know, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I said 15 degrees. <laughs> you know, I didn't know. <laughs> and, he goes, and I said, I bet I could stay in that water for 10 minutes. This is February Chicago, Lake Michigan. Yeah, cold. yeah, about as cold as water can get before it's ice. And he goes, no, 10 minutes? I said, absolutely, 200 bucks, which is something I come to say a lot. It's 200 bucks, I'll get it done kind of thing. So he's, one of my dad's buddies says, I'll give you 200 bucks if you get in that water for 10 minutes. We're going to start our phone right now. Take off my winter coat, strip down my underwear there on the dock, get in, easy. Because one of the things about when you're partying as hard as I was is you do get a little disconnected from your body in a way of like, now I'm not sure I could do that. But then it was nothing. I was making jokes with my head above the water kind of thing. They didn't have to pull me out though. My arms went numb at some point. I couldn't get back. So they yanked me out. So that's how it kind of started. Like these guys down at the dock that winter saw I would basically do anything for cash in hand at any moment, which was awesome for me because cash in hand means cash in pocket, means cash in someone else's hand and something else in my pocket kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So summer comes around. I get a job in the AM, 5 AM in Wisconsin, one hour drive from where I live in the city at Key Lime Cove, which is the biggest, this might be apocryphal, the biggest indoor water park above the Mason-Dixon line or something in the United States in terms of an indoor water park. I'm doing that from 5 a.m. to 12 in the morning. So what I'm doing is I'm partying the night before, and I'm pretty messed up for the first four hours I'm at that job, or at least kind of riding my coattails from the night before, not feeling sick yet, right? Mm -hmm. My last two hours of work there, I start sweating. I start not feeling so good. I start saying, I got to party again, or I'm really going to feel sick type thing. So I had this job set up where I could make it far enough into that in the morning and be out of there late enough that I could run and procure all of my needs to keep me from getting sick. And then in the afternoon, I would go down to my dad's boat and just sort of fall asleep in the sun. You know, I would just pass out there because those guys are all doing their own thing. And it's not uncommon that someone, you know, take a nap on deck or something. So that that's sure. what I would do. Yeah. 
So wait a minute. Yeah. To clarify, so you were mm-hmm. five in the morning till noon. Till noon. Okay, I, not it, two shifts. Five, but okay. Yeah. I see. So I, I would leave my house in Chicago. I'd get up at about 3.30 in the morning, drive about 90 miles out the ice and <laughs> towards Wisconsin. I, what I was paying in toll boots every day, I'm not even sure I was making money. It was just like survival mode, but I wasn't even thinking like that. It was just like, how do I keep everyone off my back and keep doing my thing? So I would do that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I would go down to the boat. And these guys would be down here, and, and I think the first week I was down there, someone bet me 100 bucks. I couldn't climb up the side of the boat out of the water. They were talking about this movie where a bunch of teens get stranded on the outside of a sailboat, and that's how they die. They can't get back into the boat. And I said, there's not a boat here I couldn't climb up on deck. <laughs> and, and, you know, and they go, well, you know, no way. And I go, yeah, absolutely, 100 bucks. I'll climb any one of these boats. They point at one that maybe seven feet out of the water, something like that. I go in there and I, you know, find a little footing somewhere and I climb up on the deck and say $100. Get that in my pocket. Race off to the south side or the west side, pick up what I need to stay straight, come back down. What else you got for me? That kind of thing. So, basically, it became an endurance test for a long time. How much could you lift? How long could you hold your breath? How many push-ups? This and this and that. Until one day we were all out there and someone was barbecuing on the end of their dock and... Uh, it was before, it was a spring train, I think there was a preseason Bears game, and someone dropped their phone into the water. Uh, you know, waterproof mm-hmm. iPhone case. Went down, it's about, it's between 15 and 20 feet in that harbor. And the guy's like, oh, you know, I'm screwed. This is a disaster, I can't go to the game, my ticket's on that phone. And one of the guys, that, you know, my dad would pal around with out there, goes, this kid will go in and get it, he'll basically do anything <laughs> for a hundred bucks. And I said, you got 100 bucks? And it was, I'm going to the game. I got cash in my pocket. I said, you got 200 bucks? <laughs> and he said, I got more than 200 bucks. I said, well, how much are your tickets worth to you? And he's like, okay, you're actually going to dive down there and get my phone. It's pitch black down there. And I go, you put 200 bucks on that deck. I'm going to go in and get your phone. He puts it down, dive in, down there. Again, I'm on drugs this whole time. I'm so disconnected from my body. I tried to go down to that depth a couple years ago. My ears were pop. I was in a lot of pain then took a chain down on an anchor, literally just crawled down, felt around in the dark. Is this your phone? Pop out of the water. Is this your phone? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And you go, and, and guys that have money down there and that are playing around like that, they're just excited to have something off their plate. Money, 20 is 200 is, you know, it's not, it's not about, that money meant so much more to me in terms of what it meant for how I could space out my day, my time, what that was going to look like kind of thing for me. So that became a real cottage industry. As soon as it, there's a, uh, I'm not going to say his name. There was a very famous Chicago sports athlete that had the nicest boat at the end of my dad's dock. And he would have all types of other famous Chicago, Eddie Vedder would be down there, an ex-Bull star with the proclivity for North Korean politics. And <laughs> his hair would be down there. Yeah. And these guys would go down and, you know, They'd have their wives or their girlfriends or their, you know, whatever. And wedding rings would get set on the edge when guys would go to jump in. Cell phones. You name it. Wallets. Wallets. Oh. <laughs> How many wallets? <laughs> I'd say, uh, if I can have one in it, I'll go down and get it. And I would just go down and do it. I would just somehow in the dark down there, I would go down to the bottom. I would feel around and I would come up with whatever it was. And I'd walk away. I, I wouldn't leave that day with less than 200 bucks in my pocket. I would find stuff. 
I think one time I pushed a wallet into the water off the back <laughs> of a grill because I saw it sitting there. And I just, you know, and that cash was in my pocket, which means I'd be loaded up for the night before, which means I would be loaded up to drive to work at 90 miles an hour and keep myself straight while working at Key Lime Cove, which was a very active lifeguarding job, being out in Gurney Mills in the sticks. A lot of moms would go shopping out at Gurney Mills, biggest strip mall like out in Wisconsin, and they'd drop their kids off all day at this pool. And what they'd drop them off without would be their insulin. So these kids would just float underwater around the lazy <laughs> I, I'd jump in every 20 minutes. It wasn't like, I wasn't sitting on the, I was constantly going in. Whacked out of my mind. I don't think they could sue me. For, <laughs> no one ever died on my watch. A kid lost his finger one time, but I, I wasn't—I was in a pool next to the one I was guarding. Did you find the finger? Uh, <laughs> I think they found the finger. Okay, did you? Did you die? Did I find you? the finger? No, no. I was just like you know, throw some salt on it. I think <laughs> I don't know. So this—this this was the cycle I was in all summer. I'd work out there all day, make take enough cash home at night. I would save those paychecks to pay my rent. I would use this cash during the day, one hundred, two hundred bucks to keep. The wheels spinning on what had become kind of an out-of-control problem, and it was the greatest summer job of my life. I was in complete control. I felt like I was the, the master of, you know, my own domain at that point. I, I controlled how much cash I had in my pocket just by virtue of going down there and being willing to do anything. It became like a joke. People would say, you know, what, you want that kid to drive you down to the casino two hours? Give him 200 bucks. I would do any, you know, what do you want? Bag of ice, 200 bucks. Everything was $200, and I'd make it happen. I would just do it. What, you got your car towed? I know where that lot. I literally knew where the tow lot was in the city to drive people down that would illegally park their cars during Bears games. <laughs> I put them in four at a time, 100 bucks a pop. You know, it was just, I was running, burning the candle at both ends, as they say. Well, so, summer ends. Did you ever go back uh, to that job? <laughs> That summer ended the way I think all of those kind of end, which is it got to a point where I couldn't make it three hours. I couldn't make it barely an hour without doing drugs. I was just I, – I was getting sick all the time. And I think even those guys in their, like, party zone down there could probably tell I was like – I think there's this thing that happens when you're kind of fully wrung out, you know, just – burnt at both ends kind of thing that uh, I don't even know if people know what's going on with you, but I do think they know they don't want to be around you, if that makes any sense. They can just feel your, they're like, oh, maybe not, maybe not. And what happened to me is uh, the classic, I got Terminator 2 down there. I was, uh, you know, it was at that point where I just, you know, once you can't make it down the chain and come up with the guy's, you know, wedding ring, what are you good for? And, and uh, there were these uh, kids that would work all year round on these boats. They were like professional boat, you know, dock uh, young men like myself. And uh, this kid, we'll call him Luke. He feels like a Luke in the story. This kid comes out in a wetsuit with a scuba tank. Oh. <laughs> See, that's cheating right there. Uh, that's he's not the, good. I'm the term, you know, I'm the 2000. He's the, you know, the one that turns into water kind of thing. And uh, he'd go down there and you know, he wouldn't even ask for money. He'd come up and go, hey, just remember I did you a favor kind of thing. And I go, uh, I was flabbergasted. I, I had been, uh, uh, this kid go down. You didn't need to have cash in your hand. He'd go down. He'd bring it back up just to see a smile on someone's face kind of thing. And I don't know what he's doing now. He probably, maybe he's still out there doing it. But that was my <laughs> last summer 
as sort of the uh, the dock retriever over at Dock C there. That was uh, the last real summer, summer job I had. And then, you know, cleaned up, got better, and now I have a boring job like everybody else. That was as advertised, Sam, and three great stories uh, on top of our stories of summer jobs. It really is the idea of, of, of jobs. There's a reason why so many TV shows happen in the workplace, I think, because so many stories happen at work. It's, it's probably one of the, don't they say there's three there's three living spaces. There's home, there's work, and there's the third space that can be like your favorite bar or a coffee shop or yes. a club you belong to, you know, or a team you play on. And I think the summer stories are interesting because they generally have a fixed beginning and end. Yeah, absolutely. And as mentioned, you know, when you're in college, like I was, with doing the being the manny that I ended up being one summer, like I only had two and a half months or so of time to work or that I chose to use time to work. Um, but, and then, yeah, same thing for like my old Palo Alto Muni job. That's very, very memorable stuff because, you know, this regular life comes in after that. So, yeah. And, and there's a fixed, because there's a fixed endpoint, no matter how bad it seems or how pointless it seems or how bad you're doing at it, you know it's going to end. That's true. That is very true. Um, so yeah, that, that plays into some of the jobs that we just heard from, for sure, with Forrest and Sam too. He just yeah, they they say speak to it. You heard it. So, sure. It was yeah. an actual summer job that had an endpoint, but thank God it did have an endpoint. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, we want to thank, who do we want to thank? We want to thank the storytellers, um, Forrest and Jocelyn and Sam. We want to thank you, Mr. Rosen, for oh, being on this podcast. Well, thank you. Um, but We want to thank the, the owners of the Palo Alto Municipal Golf Course and the people at the uh, Banana Plantation and Tully for putting up with us. Um, but also, we want to thank Brett. Brett, Brett Battistain, everybody. <laughs> I don't even want to try because I'm not going to do Battistain justice. But Brett, as always, thank you. Um, we got any any news other than to tell people to go to our Facebook group page and interact? Yeah. Tell your friends. Um, I mean, yeah, and you can go check out what uh, Brett and his colleagues have going over there at Ease dash drop.com and East drop studios. So it's, they put us on their network and they're nice enough to help edit and produce this thing along with Jared Ostrom. Ostrom. Jared yeah. does a lot of yeoman work for us. Also, I uh, want to re- remind you to rate and review on your favorite podcast portal. And, um, and also, you know, it's, it's getting late in summer and we want to um, give a little plug for tree Ford, Don't we? We do. Storyboard and tree Ford are, coming down the pike um we're trying to be safe and cautious and do this whole festival thing finally we uh we'll, we'll have some stuff on that after the festival the fest we, should, we will be active uh in the meanwhile where can they find the information they need to know about storyboard entry for Oh, on all the socials, you can look up Storyfort Fest or Storyfort on Facebook, treefortmusicfest.com. Treefort's on all the major socials, everything's. And yeah, just go to treefortmusicfest.com and check out the schedule. And we actually are going to be doing a live Story Forward at the fest. I think it's a it's a Friday at 2 p.m. at the Boise Center, which is right in the center of Boise. You'll be able to see. Yeah. And yeah. So uh, until then, I got nothing else to say other than to remind you to keep moving the story forward. March the narrative where it needs to go forward. 